Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 6, and let's stand together. I don't mean for this to be like a Catholic church. Everyone stand again. Uh, <laughs> everyone stand again. Grab your Bibles, if you will, and, and turn to Luke chapter 6. We're going to start with, uh, we're going to lay, start off where we left off last week. Verse 12. And we stand to make sure that we know the difference between man's words and God's words. This is God's word. This, let this be authoritative in our life and let this be the hope by which we live by. So Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 12. During those days, he went out to the mountain to pray and spent all night in prayer to God. When daylight came, he summoned his disciples and he chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and, and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the called the zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. After coming down with them, he stood in a large level place with a large crowd of his disciples and a great number of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. They came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those tormented by unclean spirits were made well. The whole crowd was trying to touch him because power was coming out from him and healing them all. Then, looking up at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, because the kingdom of God is yours. Blessed are you who are hungry now, because you will be filled. Because you, blessed are you who weep now, because you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, insult you, and slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Take note, your reward is great in heaven, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort. Woe to you who are now full, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are now laughing, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the false prophets. Lord, open your word to us that we may know you and that we may see your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so, there's been a lot of talk recently about you know, the narrative in the mass media and social media, and how if you don't speak the right narrative, they censure you. If you don't speak the right narrative on Twitter, they block you. If they, you don't speak the right narrative, you get a little tagline that says, this is not fully correct, you know, by all this different social media things and mass media uh, talking heads. But here's the question. That's the, the, the narrative that it seems like is, is trying to be posed on our, our, on our digital world the reality of our digital selves in, in the digital sphere. What narrative do you live your life by? Because what is narrative? Let's look at the word narrative. The word narrative means perception of reality. So you're, the narrative that you live your life by is really how you see life. Your, your experiences, your upbringing, your um, the, the, your, your perspective, your family upbringing, your experiences with faith and scripture. We can't read the scripture without our own narrative. 
without our perception, the lenses of our lives being viewed onto Scripture. But what is this word, narrative, in the the Christian faith? For us, we call it the testimony. It's called the testimony. Um, Excuse me. And so when we talk, when we think about the testimony of our lives, you know, we think this, this word is also attuned to this word called witness. Now, it's like just like in a trial. You know, in, in, a, in a judicial trial, you have the witness that they call to the stand to give their narrative of what they saw, of what they experienced. And so we are witnesses to God. We are witnesses to what God has done and is doing in our life. In, in our world. Now, it's interesting. You know, it seems like sometimes you, know, you go, to, go to different places and it almost seems like people are competing to have the craziest testimony. You know, and see, like we talked about before, it's like this person over here, like I was, you know, I was killing people and, and drugs and, and all these things and, and sex and prostitution and I was a drug dealer. And, and these, the, and here's the thing, I, and I don't want to discount, and hear me, I don't want to discount these things, but oftentimes we worship and praise these things these testimonies above everyone else as if God didn't transform our lives in the process the same way they did theirs. Because if we know anything from that song we just sang, everyone starts at the same place. Death. Spiritual death. Every single one of us. Ephesians 2. We who are dead in our trespasses and our sins. Me being a pastor's kid. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. And I needed a savior. Just like my buddy Bryce over in Livingston, who was a, you know, in a biker gang. You know, he's got a, I'll, let you, I'll let him share his testimony sometime. But you know, the Hell's Angel guy who's a biker and killing people and doing drugs and, and all sorts of stuff. We were all in the grave. We were all dead in our trespasses and sins. And there's my words. Okay, not my words, the Lord's words that I love. But God. So the whole story of the testimony is the but God in our lives. Whether it come be from the hood, from the forgotten, or from those who, like myself, who grew up with a wonderful family, loved, taken care of. Whether you're poor or rich, There are happy poor and there are sad, broken poor. There are happy rich and there are sad, broken rich. Just just because you come from a certain place doesn't mean your life is easier or hard based upon your socioeconomic class. But here's the thing. Every testimony is how our story tells history, his story, his story of his glory. That is what a testimony is. And here's what Jesus is saying to each one of us. As we can read from the scripture passage, that Jesus sees you. Jesus knows your name. And he calls you by your name. As he did his disciples in this passage. And not only that, he didn't just call you by your name. And when, he, when you come, Jesus shifts your trajectory and your destiny forever. But he also likes to keep doing it. He doesn't just like 
shift your trajectory and, sh- and destiny once. He loves to just, he loves to mess you up. <laughs> you think you know where your life is going and all of a sudden he's like, you're like, whoa! Kind of like we were going around, you know, everyone ever drive in the, in the car with your spouse or another person and they keep going around the roundabout and you're like, wow, my, my brain just turned right. You're like, it's like this weird, like it, you're like jolted out of your reality. You're like, whoa, God loves to do that to our lives because he loves to make much of himself. He does this in each one of our lives to write a new story a new history. So I love that word. His story. So let's look at the context in, in, this, in the scripture passage. Let's look into this passage here. So what are we doing here? So Jesus, like I said, goes up on a mountain. Well, in, in good, you know, following, following suit, I decided this week, I should probably do that myself. Get into the passage. So I took our camper and went down the canyon and spent, spent the evening out in the mountains just looking at Storm Castle and, and Garnet Peak over there and threw, our, threw my camper up, just parked it here and get random at some random trailhead. Just was like, all right, God, I'm here. Let's talk. So I sat, there with, I sat up there with my journal and just, he was, he was you know, just working and it's just wonderful, beautiful time. And I can definitely see why Jesus chose a mountain to, to go to, to seek, to seek God, you know. Everybody, you know, always talk about, you know, bless your heart in Texas. Well, bless those Texans' heart. They got no mountains. <laughs> they can't go meet with God. <laughs> Just kidding. No. I'm kidding, Texans. <laughs> but so Jesus went up on the mountain and he, he, he brought all of his disciples to this, to this area at the foot of the mountain and then he went up. If you notice, there's already people following him. Lots of people. He's probably already got a good 40, 50, maybe even up, this, up to the 72 people that are following him. He's got a big group of, of disciples and he goes up and he spends time, spends time in prayer. And this is where Jesus, this, this occasion, so he comes down off the mountain and he, we'll get to this, this in a second. He chooses the 12 out of the group. Did you catch this? So he originally had called them to follow him. Levi, Peter, he's like, follow me. But they didn't become a part of the 12 until here at the foot of the mountain. So he chose these 12 disciples, came down, and was surrounded by the crowd, talking to all of his now, of his disciples. So he's got the 12 with him, and he's got the rest of the disciples around. And not only that, but people from everywhere, all over Judea, all the way from Jerusalem itself, probably even further than that, coming to see Jesus and to meet with Jesus and to hear Jesus. And, and not only that, but what does it say? To, um, you know, uh, they came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Verse 18, and those tormented by unclean spirits, demonic spirits were made well as well. The whole crowd was trying to touch him because power was coming out from him and healing them all. Like I said, don't miss this moment. If you've, been, if you've been in the church for a while, it seems to be very tempting to just read over these passages of healing. Jesus healed everyone. Like I said, what if someone came in who was blind off the street? We knew they were blind, and all of a sudden we were here, and like someone felt led to pray for that, that person, that, that guy. We, and so we decided to lay hands on him, and all of a sudden he's like, 
I have never seen in my life. I've been, I was born blind and now I can see. Would it be like, oh, cool, cool, yeah, amen, amen, amen. No, we'd be like freaking out, like, whoa, yes, amazing. Let's sing some songs and worship the Lord. This is amazing, man. We would freak out because it's so amazing. It's so good for just one person to be healed. Can you imagine the party that's going on right now on this plateau? They're celebrating. They're worshiping the Lord. There's a buzz about this place. People are shouting, Jesus! I even see people like with the random shofar. You know, like yesterday, right? <laughs> people with the random shofar. And I loved it because my, my son Jackson was seeing these guys playing their shofars and he had this little, you know, little wind, wind plastic turbine thing. You blow on it and spins. All right, little stick. So he put that on to his mouth. He's like, <laughs> trying to, to mimic a shofar. The children were probably celebrating because they're like, I'm just mimicking what the adults are doing. They're freaking out. I'm going to freak out. This is amazing. Can you imagine this scene on this plateau, on this, in this flat area? This is incredible. It's not some somber, boring thing where Jesus, like all of a sudden people are like, oh, 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 play, praise God. Oh, yes, this is a, a, a beautiful moment. A beautiful moment. And in the midst of all this, he's talking, he then lifts up his voice to his disciples. And he gives them this address. This is Jesus' all-in moment for his disciples. It's the make or break. Here's the line in the sand. Are you going to cross it and go with me? Because I'm going to set forth what's going to happen. This is what life is going to look like from here on out. Are you in? That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. We'll get to that in a second here. But I don't want you to miss this other thing as well. Jews from you know, all, of Jer- all of Judea, Jerusalem. What else does it say? First, go back in 17. And from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. That's outside of Israel. That is Gentile territory. So already people were coming, Gentiles were coming to see Jesus. Our people, we're Gentiles. Unless you've got some random Jewish lineage, that's cool. Yeah. But we're Gentiles. The reason, Jesus is the reason why we're here. Why we exist, most of us. I was son of a Baptist preacher who met my mom at a Baptist college. That wouldn't exist. I wouldn't exist if not for Jesus. Literally would not exist. And here we see Jesus describing this to his disciples. Addressing, speaking directly to his disciples. And he knew that the crowd was there around him, but he was speaking to his disciples. He was, just, he was speaking specifically to those who were going to be following him who would be forsaking everything to follow him. And remember, if you remember all the way back to, all the way forward to Acts chapter one, when they were replacing Judas after he killed himself because he betrayed Jesus, one of the stipulations was that one of the disciples that they were, would replace Judas with had to have been there since the beginning. Since, as they call it, since the baptism of John. So even before, way before this, so the disciple who replaced Judas 
was following Jesus at this moment and listening to this sermon. Jesus shifted the trajectory of each one of these disciples. But let's even take a little bit, look deeper in this. Jesus prays for his Father's heart and will for people before he shifts their trajectory and destiny. Remember, he spent all night in prayer. All night. Seeking the heart of God in his Father's presence, in the Spirit. This is a big occasion for Jesus. What was he praying for? He was praying for, the, for God's heart, the Father's heart for his ministry. What, did, what was this going to look like? He prayed, for, he, he prayed for who God wanted to be his 12 disciples. And when God th- brought them to his, his attention, I could see Jesus just saying, God, show me your heart. Father, show me your heart for Simon, the zealot, the crazy political guy. He just keeps going on this, this zealot rants, make Israel great again <laughs> type rants. Give me patience for him, God. Praying for James. Praying for John. God, what is your heart for John? Praying for Judas Iscariot. I think when Jesus came and he chose Judas, he already knew the Father's heart for Judas. He already knew from the, from the beginning that Judas would betray him in the garden three years later. But he prayed for him and Jesus loved him He washed his feet. He washed Jesus' feet at the Last Supper. He wanted God's heart for each disciple. He knew the Father's purposes for each one. Because before Jesus calls his disciples, as it's called here, apostles, which means sent ones. This is like, this this is actually a governmental term. These are emissaries, ambassadors for his name, for his kingdom. He prays for them. Jesus still prays for each one of us today. It says in Romans chapter 8, And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Jesus is praying for you to the Father. Just like he prayed for Simon, John, James, Bartholomew, Levi. James, the lesser, James, the the greater. Judas and Judas. He's praying for you. He knew that he was calling each one of them to kingdom work that would eventually lead each one of them to suffer and most of them to die for their faith. Being speared in India, being stabbed in Ethiopia, being crucified upside down, being boiled alive in oil. But his calling led also to the explosion of the Spirit of God and to the insurgence of the kingdom of God. That's still the mission today. The insurgence of the kingdom of God. Of God. Every one of Jesus' disciples came from different walks of life. 
Some are poor, some are rich. I mean, think about Levi Matthew that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Filthy rich. Peter and James, John, Andrew, probably dirt poor. Or just middle class, just making a living. Simon the Zealot was a, probably a thief and a murderer. Possibly a murderer. I'm not going to say that. Don't, ju- don't look that up. Uh, <laughs> but the Zealots were known to attack people on the road and steal their goods. So, this, so Simon the Zealot was probably a thief. Stealing from his own people, beating up, and some, they've been, they were known to have killed their own countrymen for their goods so that they could fund their revolution against the man. The Romans, of course. But all of them were called to this new creation, kingdom of God mission. No matter where you're coming from, you, us, today, are still called into this mission. It all began with Jesus' prayers for you. Because God really and truly, hear this and feel this, loves you. He really cares for you. He does. He cares. And desires your good. This may be difficult for some of us to grasp because we've been, we've been taught religion all of our lives that says you must do and therefore earn God's favor. Don't sin, do good, make God happy. That's not the gospel. The gospel is you are enough. You are good. You are holy. You are righteous. Not because of anything you have done, but because of everything of what Jesus has done for you and in you and through you. When you say yes to God, He floods your life with his goodness. And he loves and cares for you and desires your good. Sometimes we might pray, well, God didn't want that good in my life because I did this bad thing. Not the gospel. Well, I was unfaithful to him. What does it say? When we are faithless, he is faithful. So that excuse doesn't fly either. Well, I have to do this in order to gain from... No. I have to obey God for Him to bless me. No. The gospel is you are beloved of God. You just have to wake up and realize it. Discover the joy. Discover the newness. Discover the Holy Spirit working in your life. And what does this look like? How, how does God invite us into live with him? Well, he set it forth right here. Now, oftentimes, these are kind of like, are kind of like separated off as their own little things. Uh, I like to call them the, the Beatitudes and the Woatudes. Woatitudes. It's this juxtaposition. It's this contrast between these two, these two groups of people. These weren't supposed to be like these, you know, simple general platitudes and, and you know, Jesus ethics. Um, the, Jesus is always grounding 
us in a kingdom perspective. So these are giving us a kingdom perspective to Jesus' ministry back then and Jesus' ministry today. I actually kind of don't even like the word Sermon on the Mount. (laughs) So in fact, I had a professor in college that said, if Jesus had submitted the Sermon on the Mount as as a term paper, I would have failed him. I would have flunked him. And we're like, oh, writing that one down. You, know. <laughs> you just said you would have failed my Lord and Savior. Um, <laughs> but because it's not supposed to be a term paper. This is, this is, I don't even like the word sermon on the mount. But, but rather, equipping. Or, even better, the constitution on the mount. This is Jesus giving the constitution of the kingdom of heaven. This is his declaration of independence. This is Jesus' bill of rights. This is Jesus' constitution of what? The way. This is why the early church, when they first got launched, were first originally called followers of the way. They weren't called Christians until much later, and even, even then it was a curse word. It was supposed to be a little, you know, kind of dismissive term. These little Christs. And they were called that by the Romans. Our true, na- our true identity first was followers of the way. We proclaim the way of Jesus. The way of salvation. The way. And this, the whole, this is Jesus kickstarting his teaching on what it means to walk in the way. The way of the new covenant. The way of Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't simply save us individually. He brings us in to be a part of a global and timeless kingdom family. Or as you know, maybe a, you know, folks from the hood might call it you know, the, the king fam. Got to make it cool and hip. Right? That's free when you can take it back to your youth group. <laughs> Just kidding. Sorry, I was around, the, the Hell Fest yesterday was awesome. It was really connecting me to my Southern California roots. Um. <laughs> but this is the beauty of this. We're not alone. The call of the gospel is not a call to come and be saved, to have a relationship with God by yourself. The call of the kingdom of God into the kingdom of God is to come and be a part of a king fam. Of a kingdom family. Not just a new nation. Not just a new country within a country. But to be a part of a family. A family of love. As Jesus loved us. Because when Jesus shifts our trajectory and destiny, he gives us promises and power to fulfill all that he has called us to do together. What kind of things? And, and why does he do this? Why does Jesus give us power through his spirit? Because life often is hard and way more than you can handle. Let me just rip this Band-Aid right off and pour some hydrogen peroxide on it real quick. Let it fizzle up. The Bible never says that God will not give you more than you can handle. In fact, it says quite the opposite, that God will give you continually more than you can handle. He will always give you more than you can handle. If God is calling you to something 
It's more than you can handle. And if you can handle it, it's not God. Because he constantly wants to show up and show himself to be powerful in your life. To show himself that he is enough to carry your burdens. That he is good. That you can't do it, but he can. Let me say that again. That you can't, but he can. Because he wants us to engage and draw close to him. God wants to show us his splendor. And the Spirit helps us in this. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 26, the first part of the verse we just read, in the same way the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. Because we do not know what to pray for, pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes. Not only do we have Jesus praying for you, but the Spirit's also praying for you too. The Spirit intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So Jesus is praying for you and the Spirit is praying for you. You got two people battling for you. To who? The Father who loved you, who chose you. And he is also for you. When Jesus shifts our trajectory and destiny, he brings us into deeper relationship with him and others. In, so there, it's this, this narrative is talked about in, in Matthew and Mark. And it's interesting, in, in Mark chapter 3, where it talks about that, it says, he actually adds this phrase, he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, what? To be with him, to send them out to preach and other things, etc. But what is the first reason why Jesus calls disciples to him? To be with him. The purpose God called you, the purpose that Jesus called you to be with him, was to be with him. That's the whole purpose of salvation. That's the whole purpose of proclaiming faith in Jesus Christ, is to be with the God who loves us. Because God's ability trumps our inability if we will lean into his sufficiency when and where we are at our weakness. As he says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. Grace is sufficient for who? You. And his power is perfected when you have it all together. When you repent and do all the best things. When you obey. No. When you come to God and say, God, I'm weak. My power is perfected in weakness. Help me, God. Be with me, God. I want to be with you. And God's like, cool, I'm in. Let's snuggle. God's a snuggler. You don't know that. 
God loves to be snuggled. Like girls, snuggling with their moms. Like my son loves snuggling with me when I'm reading his book at night. God is a snuggler. And God loves to shift your trajectory and destiny. And so I want, I want to tell you about this. My new friend, Cammie, and her brother, Gabriel. <laughs> so we were at Helpfest at uh, this, this event that, that's over in Livingston yesterday that uh, the First Baptist Church in, in, in Livingston put on, my buddy Bryce put on yesterday, our sister church over there in Livingston. And... Um, we were just sitting there and there's all you know, person after person getting up and sharing their testimony of what God did in their life, the, the, the testimony of what God, how God transformed their life. And I was sitting there cuddling with my daughter as she was sleeping on me. I've been trying to at that point. But, and just, and listening to Cammie's story. And I was just moved. And I wanted her, I, wanted, I, I, I ran after her, I guess she was leaving, I ran out the, out the door, I was like, would you mind coming tomorrow? So this is very, very fairly new. So I would love for her to share her story with you as she shared it yesterday and the song that she also wrote uh, with it. So can you go ahead and come on up? We just give each other a hard time about it. It's awesome. Um, but, yeah, so um, Gabe and I are actually from Brazil. We were born and raised. We're missionary kids from Brazil. And um, God really did do one of those, hey, life is looking pretty great. Let's mess it up. And so, um, and it wasn't exactly mess it up. It was just change it up, shift it, I could say. But, um I was fairly comfortable with my ministry in Brazil. I was um, a youth leader within our home church, as was Gabe. And I was the leader of around 32 girls, teenage girls, within a youth ministry that had around 60 to 70 youth total. And I loved those girls like as close to like a mother as I could. Um, and then um, we were able to divide and conquer, so I was put with a little bit smaller of a group, and I was able to invest in their lives. And then in the middle of last year, God was like, hey, so I think, oops, I almost fell over just now. It's embarrassing. Um, but God was like, hey, so I want you to drop everything here and go to Montana with your brother. <laughs> and so here we are. It'll have been six months on the 9th next month. Um, but basically my story is I feel like it's one of those ones where I have people come up to me and say ah oh, man I wish I had such a crazy story and my immediate response is no you don't it's not like I was given this story to tell people and say okay so just say these things happen to you and then that'll be good and people will feel impacted no I actually have to go through all of these things and I wouldn't say I earned it, but I would say that telling these heavy testimony stories 
there's something that comes with lived experience. And so um, I grew up in a really like loving home. My parents were always super caring, super, you know, involved in our lives. Um, when I was really little, my dad had to travel a lot because he's a missionary, and so he would travel a lot to the States and back and whatnot. And when I was eight, my life just took a shift to the, to the dark side, you could say. Um, I was sexually abused by a very close family friend, and um, at the time I didn't I didn't fully understand what was happening, and I also thought I needed to protect my best friend, who he said he would hurt if I didn't do everything he asked. And also I was protecting my brother, because he said he would hurt my brother. And so that was a really dark period, especially because it really wrecked my, you know, my view of my value, who I thought I was, how much I thought I was worth. And it really shaped the way I saw myself for years on. Um, when I was 12 was when I began dealing with eating disorders and fully fell into depression. And I wouldn't even say I walked into it. I would say I actually laid down in it and just rolled around in the mud. Um, I began... I began the eating disorder slowly with bulimia and then it escalated into anorexia and I was back and forth. And that is still something I struggle with is deciding to eat and to keep it and to know that my body is a temple and it needs to be taken care of. It needs to be fed. And in order for me to do the things that God is asking me to do, I need to be healthy. Um, that same year, I began self-harming and I was doing all of this while pretending to be totally fine and totally happy because it was weird to ask for help. It was strange to admit that I needed help. I felt like I was a failing Christian. I was. I thought, well, God is enough for other people. How is he not enough for me? I can't let anybody know that I'm going through all of this. And so eventually when everything was found out and my parents started really working with me through this, I felt so overwhelmed and the real tipping point was my first suicide attempt when I was around 14 or 15. Um, it was a really difficult time. One of our youth pastors had to pull me from a lake and he just held me there. And I remember crying and crying and crying and thinking like, ah, how, how is this, what, how is this all happening? Unfortunately, I went on to attempt suicide four times, four more times. But I'm not going to talk about all of those attempts today. I just want to talk about one that to this day has marked me in a way so profound because of the truth that I found. And so many times I felt ashamed of the fact that even though I found out that truth, I was still able to get low enough to forget that truth. So I was about 16 or 17 at the time, and just angered at life, 
angry that I was still around, and I had fully convinced myself that my family would be better off, everything would be better off if I wasn't around. My parents would be able to give my brother the attention he deserved. Um, my brother wouldn't be questioning why his sister hated him so much. Um, you know, people wouldn't be burdened with m the weight of my life. And so, at the time, I wouldn't say I would, you know, if you generalize my story, you could say it involves sex, drugs, and alcohol. Um, but I wouldn't say the drugs part, just because I wasn't into any heavy drugs. I would steal medication from my grandma and just take those to get a little bit, like, high and not, I guess, numb the pain of what I was feeling in the moment. And um, so that particular day, I remember I had a couple handfuls of pills with me in school, and I just decided I'm going to take them all, and then what happens, happens. It's going to be great. I'm going to fall asleep and just never wake up again. That's what I thought. And so the estimated amount of pills that I took that day was 29. And I remember being at the school water fountain, and it didn't, it wasn't like, oh, I just won. No, I had to sit there for about five minutes to get everything down. And after I took them all, I remember thinking, like, wow, I finally did something right. Like, I'm finally going to achieve something that I've strived for. Um, and it was so surreal, the, the hours leading up. Um, I called the school nurse because my stomach started hurting so bad. And I just said, like, hey, um, I don't feel good. Can you call my mom? She calls my mom, and I start getting into this farewell pattern where I think, this is the last time I'm ever going to step out of this school. This is the last time my mom is going to walk me home. This is the last time I'm going to walk into my house. This is the last time I'm going to walk into my room. And I remember throughout this whole process just continuing to say, Mom, I love you so much. I just need you to know that I love you so much. And in my mind, I was doing everything I was doing out of love for my family. When in reality, I would have been crushing them. And so my biggest regret of that moment, I mean, other than taking all those pills and actually trying it, um, was not being able to say I love you to my dad and my brother. Um, as I was fading and blacking out, I remember that I, I wish I could have told them I love them. And I told mom to tell them, hey, tell Gabe and dad I love them if I don't see them. And I mean, she probably thought I meant before I go to bed or whatever. Um, but I knew it was my like final farewell. Um, and when I blacked out, I remember thinking, like, I woke, I, it was like I blinked. I was like, how am I conscious? What's happening? What? And I was just in this black void. I wasn't standing or falling or floating. I just was in this place. And it was so dark. I couldn't see my hand right in front of my face. And I just remember feeling this dark, this darkness and this loneliness. It was cold in this place, but not physically cold. It was just like a cold, dead place. And I remember thinking I finally got what I deserved. 
I don't deserve to be anywhere. And this voice from beyond comes out and says, hey, this is the void in your heart that you are trying to fill, that nothing or, and no one could ever fill. I am the only one that can fill this void. You won't fill it with drugs, you won't fill it with alcohol, you won't fill it with people, you won't fill it with anything other than me. So let me fill this void. And by the grace of God, I woke up 24 hours later with no repercussions. And I had to tell my mom this story like three years later. She had no idea. And I remember telling her and her being like, what are you talking about? We were talking about, you know, some of her crazy things she did when she was a teenager. And I asked her if she had had any drug, um, you know, experience. And she told me about like, I think like Adderall or something. And I was like, well, yeah, there's that one time I took 29 pills and she was like, what? And I was like, yeah, remember? And come to find out she had no idea about that. And so I stand here today by the grace of God. And I, like I said yesterday, I wish I could say that I never attempted suicide again. I wish I could say I was never sexually abused again. I wish that I could say that I never brought a knife to my skin again. And I wish that I could say I didn't get blackout drunk again. But I did. Because... After surviving that, and instead of running to the arms of the only one that could actually fill that void within me, I doubted that love. I couldn't imagine someone wanting me, someone loving me, with how disgusted I was with myself. Um, years later, I was about, when I was 18, or couple days after my 18th birthday, I had a supernatural experience. And the next day, when I was asked, okay, um, how do you think salvation works, Cammie? And I explained, and this is probably the most embarrassing part of my testimony, because I'm a pastor's kid, missionary kid, have been on countless missions trips, have been to countless, you know, conferences, VBS, Awanas, all of it, all of it. I should know to a T how salvation works. But no, I had it backwards. In my mind, I believed that I had, I was dirty because of my sin. And I had to clean myself, get the house ready so that Jesus could come and live inside of me. And... What was told to me that day was so revolutionary, and it changed my, the way I viewed the world and the way I viewed life. Jesus isn't this visitor that's coming by and I need to make sure my house is clean. Jesus is the cleaner. Jesus is the one that's going to go into the nooks and crannies and clean those places we don't want to look at. He's the one that's going to go into that back, closet, the one that has the the messy room, the one that has boxes, it's probably got some cockroaches, it's pretty gross. He's the one that is not afraid to go into that place 
and clean that stuff up. Throw away the garbage that's putrefying the house (laughs) and make it into a clean, new, livable space. And so in that season of life, I had this one really bad, I think I was, it was also around 16, 17, um, where I got drunk at a school party. My friend had to walk me home. And I was so embarrassed because I was like, I shouldn't be doing this. First of all, I'm underage drinking. I'm doing it at a Baptist school, like all my friends and I at this Baptist school drinking. And then my friend walks me home, and I remember feeling so ashamed of myself that I had done that, that I felt like I needed to punish myself. So I cut myself in order to punish myself. Then the shame set in for having cut myself. And I was like, what am I doing with my life? And I had this moment where I was like, God, I do not believe in you. There is no way you are real. There's no way. You let an eight-year-old be abused that way countless times. You didn't keep me safe from all the other people that came and hurt me. So why should I believe in you? Why? Why did all of this happen? If you are real, tell me why all of this has happened. And I've always learned that if you want to hear the voice of God, you need to do two things. Keep quiet and go into his word. And so I, in that moment of so much pain and anguish and anger, I silenced myself and I did a good old flick and tick with my Bible. And my finger landed exactly on 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. And so I ended up reading verse 3, 4, and 5, where it says, um, Thanks be to the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gives us comfort in all of our anguish, so that we may comfort others through the comfort we ourselves have received. I have received over the years, I'm 23 today. I've received, (laughs) yeah, thank you. Oh, sorry, not today, like nowadays, I am 23. I'm so sorry for confusing you guys. Confusing, confusing, sorry. (laughs) Um, Now I am 23, yeah, that's what I meant. I'm going to be 24 in August. Um, But, so, I have received in these years an overwhelming amount of comfort, an overwhelming amount of undeserved grace. I've received a ridiculous amount of love and care, and so many times, I've thrown that back in God's face. I've thrown it back in the faces of the people that have loved me most and just told them, I don't believe you because how could anybody love me? How could anyone want me? Look at me. When I was 18 and I got saved, after the whole ordeal, I remember my makeup was like running down my face my clothes were kind of half on half off it was this whole thing and i was on suicide watch right after i went into the bathroom and i looked at myself in the mirror for the first time and at that time it was the first time in 10 years 
I looked at myself in the mirror and I remember being surprised with what I saw. Because up until that point, I thought I was disgusting. Physically, I thought it was gross. I thought it was so ugly. And in one of the moments where you should look at yourself and be like, oh dang, girl, you need to get yourself together. I looked at myself and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not ugly. I'm actually kind of cute. Whoa, hi there. Um, and it was the first time where I actually was like, God, good job. I'm not totally ugly. And that began a process of me actually beginning to revalue myself. Not look at myself only from a physical standpoint, but also realize that God didn't make this huge mistake when he made me. And so through my testimony from that time on, you know, I have dedicated as much of my life as I can to living out 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 to 5. If my story and my pain can result in someone else's restoration other than mine, I wouldn't say it was worth going through, but I would say that I gained more than I lost. And I did lose very important years of my childhood because of the abuse I went through. But I have gained so many friends over that period of time. I have gained so many people that have come to me and said, thank you for sharing your story. Because of your story, I was able to tell someone that I had been abused. If even only one person came to know Jesus, that would have been enough. And so the song I'm gonna sing to you guys today, songwriting has always been a passion for me. Um, I've done it ever since I was little. And I actually had the opportunity to go to college for songwriting. I did two years of songwriting at song in Australia. And it was one of the greatest things ever. It was so awesome. But the song I'm gonna sing to you guys today was one written right after I read that passage, right after God proved his existence to me, essentially. Um, I like to say that I write songs and most of my songs sound like love songs, but they're actually songs to God or they're songs to myself, calling myself out and trying to put all these feelings that I have out there so they're not rotting on the inside and I can actually kind of suss them out and figure them out. But I've had these moments where God has written me songs. Where I know that if I saw any one of my friends in the situation that I was in, this is what I would have told them. But somehow I couldn't tell it to myself. And so God came in and told these things to me. So this song is called Believe in Me, and um, I wrote it when I was about 16, and thankfully it has helped multiple people. This will be my second time singing it in public, so um, yesterday was the first, and you know, I love this song so much because it's been one of those secret songs and over the years has helped different people that have heard it, you know, just in private. 
And I'm glad to be able to be sharing this with you guys today. And I pray that these words would minister to your hearts because I truly believe that this is how God sees each and every one of you guys. If God's grace and his love and his mercy are available to a person like me, who countless times threw it back in his face, it is available to each and every one of us here.
I just had this weird picture in my head thinking about as Jesus was calling different disciples as they're by the, by the river. Not, I'm not saying this. I'm just, I just this, this thought. Like, what if Jesus walked by James as he was, you know, by the sea, you know, tying, taking the rope and, and pulling in the, the fishes and he was looking at the rope and he's like, man, I just want to hang myself today. I'm done. But God came and said, you're not done. Come and follow me. And I will show you greater things than you've ever seen in your life. Every one of us, God has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light to tell his story. He has given us the testimony of what he has done in our lives to share with the world, to share so that other people can come to faith in Jesus, so that they can be a part of God's story, so that they can have a testimony of how they experienced God through you, so that you could be a comfort to those around us in our world. So don't hold it in. Don't hold your faith in. Don't hold the hope and the peace and the love of God in. Don't be afraid to share it because it's good news. So it's called the gospel. It is good news for those who need to hear it most. And those people are all around us, even those who, who are smiling at us and inside are breaking. Share the good news. Share the love of God with everyone that you know. And watch as God starts to do amazing things in your life and in the lives of others around you so that he can make much of himself. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your story that you are writing through our lives. Lord, we are the pages that you are writing your beautiful poetry on. So God, keep writing. Keep writing your story. Add more and more pages to your book, Lord Jesus, as we share our lives with you, and as we share our lives with one another. Let us encourage one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.